Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Uh, I'm laughing at myself because I seem to be so disorganized tonight. Today is Friday, November 28, 2014. Praise Yahweh, and thanks for listening. We're getting moved once again, hopefully this time for the long term, into a new home in Panama City, and in conjunction with the recent rash of hacking attempts and other technical problems at Christagenia, I really don't know how I got a how I got a program together tonight. But soon I'll know how effective that effort was, or if, by the grace of God, or whether it was really effective at all. Two hacked websites to deal with, and we are not totally out of the woods in respect to that. There's um, our being so busy relocating, once again, in conjunction with a, um, a spurt of security upgrades and security problems with the, um, the content management system that we use to produce our content at Christogenia, which is usually a very secure system, but being busy and them having um, so many security problems and security upgrades, we were taken advantage of and exploited by um, hackers on two different websites over the last few weeks. I think I mentioned this last week, and I'm still recovering from that and and, um, spent a great deal of time this week improving security at all of my websites, which are actually quite many, and and websites that I tend to for others. And um, some of them were DOS this week. It's been a... um, Unusually busy time for hackers on the internet, and, and I know that other um, websites a lot more trafficked than even mine, such as the Daily Stormer, have, have had um, serious setbacks caused by hackers. Also, so I'm not alone. But yes, there have been a um, there seems to have been a very elevated level of hacking on the internet and we've been able to ward most of it off even though I've been busy moving the um, the exploits that were successful were not from malicious hackers but rather they were from the type of hackers that want to exploit other people's um, resources in order to send out junk mail and things like that so com, that website fell victim because I wasn't able to um, upgrade the software and, and because there was a, um, an injection script exploit which became well known. That website was, was taken over by spammers and, and sent out thousands of spam emails. Jew bastards or, or those particular acting like Jew bastards who who are um, adept at taking over websites or, or, or exploiting web servers in order to use the resources to send their spam out. In this case, it was um, 
some of those phony FedEx emails that we've all gotten, gotten from time to time. There was, um, in addition to that, two weeks ago, the part seven of the One Corinthian series, somehow I had a bad link on a player and didn't notice it until I noticed that, that the um, downloads for part eight exceeded part seven in just a few days and realized that part seven wasn't moving. Nobody reported that to me, which is odd. Usually I get reports of those things right away. We also had a um, software upgrade which prevented people from downloading certain files at Christagenia for a day and a half. I couldn't help that. There was a bug in the upgrade script, and, and um, I have to apologize for that. So we've had our share of challenges. Yesterday was Thanksgiving Day, as it is customarily celebrated here in America. Christians should offer thanks and praise to Yahweh their God every day. But there is nothing wrong with reserving a day out of the year for families to set aside and, and to do so together. In reality, families should do it a lot more frequently than once a year. That's for sure. And, and um, the Hebrew feast days would probably be a good time to reserve to do that. In the modern world, that's um, often quite difficult, we understand, but we should bear that in mind and make an attempt to celebrate those things when we can in honor of our God and his Christ. We have a lot to be thankful for. I can praise Yahweh God for having a wife like Melissa. I can be thankful, we can both be thankful to... Um, Ginny and John Wade Moore for being so helpful in helping us get here to, to Florida, to the Florida Panhandle. For all of our supporters, who make Christiania possible by supporting our work and our ministry, to all of those who visit our website and appreciate its content, Christiania remains, I say remains because it has been one of the top Christian websites on the Internet for several years now. And I don't mean to say one of the top Christian identity websites, I mean to say one of the top Christian websites. So we can praise God for that. Christiania actually gets more traffic than the Southern Baptist Convention website. So the Baptist ass clowns should take note of that. Then the North American Mission Board, the churchofchrist.org, the Lutheran Missouri Synod website, Christogonia gets more traffic than a lot of long-standing denominational Christian websites. But that doesn't mean that we can rest comfortably. The web is a, um, the internet is 
a beast of scale, and and um, even with all our traffic and and um, how well we do in the website rankings with that, it's nothing compared to some of the major media outlets. Some clown like David Icke puts a a YouTube up on about the 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 moon being fake. I saw a YouTube this week. The moon is not real, David Icke. The moon can't be real for this reason and that reason and that reason. And it gets three quarters of a million views spouting New Age horse manure. It's incredible. So the, the, the Internet is, in, it, it is a um, – everything's relative on the Internet. A very small number of websites get huge volumes of traffic, and most websites don't get visited at all, and that's the truth. Ninety percent of websites probably only get a few visits a month, if that. The, um, the bottom line is that if you are an um, identity Christian, and you believe in our message, and you believe that we do have the truth, regardless of your um, position in life, you should be finding ways to expound and promote our message to people of white European descent everywhere because they all need to hear it. We know that we are never going to be popular, but we certainly endeavor to be effective. And being effective means getting our message, our Christian identity truth, because we know it to be truth in the faces of as many of our Christian white kinsmen or, or white European Christ, kinsmen, Christian or not as we can every day. And we should all be engaged in that endeavor. And maybe one day websites, not necessarily Christogenia, but Christian identity websites like Christogenia, maybe one day could get as many visits as clowns like David Icke. That's um, probably all I have to say about that. It's, there's, there's many ways to do that. If you're in a position where you have a um, an occupation in in the world and and you don't want to risk certain factors because you're a um, well well Joseph Arimathea is a good example. He was a wealthy man and and for that reason he was influential politically and, and could make. Um, headway politically that less influential people could never make and also secretly support Christ and the apostles. And, and that's fine. But no matter your position, you could help our cause by advancing our Christian identity message through promoting it in diverse places. Whether you do it anonymously because you have to or openly because you don't have any such position in life where risk matters, and openly is always the better way to do it anyway, well, 
you should be promoting Christian identity in your daily walk every day. Spreading website links, telling people about material, telling people about scripture and, and why we believe what we do and knowing where to send them for the answers. That's important because none of us have all the answers ourselves. But there's always a paper, a book, an essay on the Internet that has specific answers that people are looking for. We should have those things at hand and spread them every day. Otherwise, your, um, your profession, if you keep it in a closet, your profession is for naught. Now, Christogenia grew rapidly its first three years, and, and we're still a growing website, but the, that growth is slowed, not necessarily because my, my content or Clifton's content production is slowed, or we're not posting as much as we used to, but because in interest in, in any movement or, or in any endeavor seems to level off after a bit. People get used to it being there, and, and they don't promote it or, or spread it around as fervently as they should. So we seek, we, we seek to grow our message, not to grow our pocketbook, not to grow our number of supporters, but to grow an awareness among our people. And we give away everything, all the content and writing that we produce is available freely. We seek to grow the awareness among our people to pull them out of Babylon. That should be the goal of every identity Christian, and that's what we should be engaged in doing daily. In, well, not maybe in every conversation, but at least in many of our conversations throughout the week or the day. That's the way it should be. I try to engage people every time I go out of the house and, and go to a store or a mall or, or, or a restaurant or wherever we may go for a walk on the beach and say things to try to see if I can't spark a, a, a spark of attention into people I speak to or encounter that I could carry the conversation further. And, and we should all endeavor that at all times. We should become walking lights for the truth of Christ found in Christian identity. And with that being said, we will turn to the epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians, part 9. And this segment is titled, License and Licentiousness. And there is a difference. In... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm sorry about the squeaky chair. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addressed certain issues relating to marriage. Beginning his discourse with the words, where he said, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, there it is evident that the Corinthians had written to Paul for advice concerning marriage, ostensibly 
because the assembly of Corinth was undergoing the trial of persecutions, something which is passed over by many commentators, but which is certainly evident in Paul's words found in verses 26 and 28 of that chapter. Here it is evident, here in chapter 8, that as the topic changes from marriage to idolatry, Paul continues to address issues for which the Corinthians had inquired of him. Paul addresses this topic of idolatry with several digressions for other things which he was compelled to discuss through chapter 11 of this epistle. Then in chapter 12, he moves on to other things which the Corinthians had evidently asked him about in their letter to him. So for four chapters here, 8 through 11, Paul addresses certain aspects of proper Christian deportment, such as in chapter 11, the gathering of the Christian assembly, and deportment in relation to the idolatry of the Greco-Roman society, which is addressed primarily in chapters 8 and again in chapter 10, and in relation to Christian license and unchristian licentiousness here in chapter 8. Paul uses himself as an example in chapter 9, and also in turn makes an example of the assembly in chapters 10 and 11. While some of the circumstances have changed, we shall see that Paul's discussion is every bit as relevant today as it was in his own time. And with that, we will commence with 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul opens with the words, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know. And then he makes a parenthetical statement, which is quite long. Perhaps two and a half verses. Because all the knowledge we have, the knowledge inflates, but love fills. If one supposes to have known anything, not yet does he know as according, according as there is need to know. But if one loves Yahweh, this he knows by him. And the parenthetical statement ends at verse 3. While we do not frequently note or even refer to the published Bible commentaries, Matthew Henry very succinctly and appropriately wrote on the first verse here that there is no proof of ignorance more common than conceit of knowledge. In other words, once you think you know everything, you don't know anything. The more you learn, if your learning is sincere, the more you realize you have a need to learn more. Paul is not saying, as he is sometimes misinterpreted, that he or his readers have all knowledge. Paul says, because all the knowledge we have. He is referring to the body of whatever knowledge each individual among them may possess. One must be careful not to allow the ego to become inflated by reason of what one knows or by reason of what one 
imagines himself to know because not everything we know is quite right. It happens frequently, and it is quite easy. For one to judge one's brethren upon whatever laws of Yahweh one learns, and which one supposes not to have transgressed himself, or perhaps if one has transgressed and is since repented of that particular law. I realize I shouldn't eat pork, so I'm going to go beat up everybody I see that eats pork and hit them over the head until they stop eating pork too. That's the, that, that's especially frequent in Christian identity, where upon the realization that one's own Israelite ancestors were bound to those laws, one immediately begins forcibly promoting a need to keep the whole law and cajoling others that they must also do that, not really understanding the relationship of Israel to the law under Christ. I've seen many people learn Christian identity and become fervent but also pharisaical about the law. It's good to be fervent. It's not good to be pharisaical. In that manner, the knowledge we acquire causes us to become, as Paul phrases it, inflated. However, as we shall see here, a knowledge that with Christ Israel is freed from the judgment of the law, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7, one may also become inflated against his brethren in that same manner. As the Apostle Peter warns in his first epistle, Christian liberty must not be used as a cloak for maliciousness. All Christians should seek to employ the laws of Yahweh their God as a model for their conduct, which Paul explained at length in Romans chapters 2 and 3. However, becoming pharisaical concerning the law, or becoming equally pharisaical concerning the grace of God, one does not know according as there is need to know, because no man can possibly know everything. All men should look upon their brethren with humility. Having humility, we can judge our brethren with mercy. And that common love, which all Christian Israelites should have for one another, However, since true humility is a willingness to accede to the word of God, we can also seek to conform ourselves to his image and comply with his law. As James said in chapter 3 of his single epistle from verse 13, who is wise and knowledgeable among you he must show by good conduct his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and rivalry in your hearts, do not exult and lie against the truth. 
from John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Paul says, concluding his parenthetical remark, but if one loves Yahweh, this he knows by him. I have too many, those last four words, those last five words in English, I'm sorry, I probably have too long a discourse concerning. The final clause of this passage, four Greek words, is quite difficult to interpret and easy to misunderstand. Properly, the verb is passive, and here it can mean either it is known or he is known. It would have been proper to more, more proper to write, but if one loves Yahweh, this is known by him, and the pronoun him has been interpreted as referring either to God or to the man loving God, depending on which translation you read or which commentator you read. One translation renders the clause to say, but anyone who loves God is known by him. And this is where the rubber meets the road. These five words in the Christogenia New Testament, this he knows by him. These five words might seem insignificant. It's only five words. It's the last clause of verse 3 here. It's short. What does it matter? It matters a lot when you have a few dozen of these in Paul's epistles and mainstream Christians universalize these and take advantage of these um, difficult to understand little statements and, and corrupt them into universalism. And they do it all the time in Paul's epistles. That's why they're important, even though an examination of them seems mundane, and even though by themselves the clauses don't seem that important, or they seem rather harmless. But anyone who loves God is known by him is simply a lie. And Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, would agree with that interpretation. And he does. Under the entry for the verb to know. We reject that interpretation because Yahweh God himself said to the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And Christ said to certain men who were professing his name, get away from me, I never knew you. Certain men who were portrayed as professing his name. It is therefore clear from Scripture that not everyone who professes to love God is known or recognized by God. Thayer cited Galatians 4.9 in support of his interpretation, but the context of that passage refers to those subject to law who were redeemed, referring to the dispersions of the children of Israel in Galatians 4.6.
whether it's right or wrong, literally, the Greek clause is represented here as this he knows by him with a capital H, capitalizing the final pronoun, and thereby indicating that it refers to God. As in interpreting Paul's words here to mean that a man's love for God is known to him by the means of God himself. For instance, where Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We attempted to express the literal meaning of this is known by him while interpreting what is known to belong to the man and not to God, and the final pronoun to be referring to God and not to the man. That's quite the opposite way in which the Judeo-Christian scholars interpret this passage. And this is because the preposition employed here by Paul is the preposition hupo. And a word like by in the New Testament, by, simple little word, can come from the Greek preposition dia, or perhaps from ek, or perhaps from hupo. And the differences are not inconsequential. There's a huge um, difference in the meanings of the three prepositions. Thayer himself, at his entry for Hupo, says that with the genitive, and the pronoun here is, is in the genitive case, it is first properly in a local sense of the situation or position under something higher, kupo. And secondly, metaphorically, of the efficient cause as that under the power of which an event is conceived of being. Translations of this passage, such as those found in the King James and other versions, and even Sayer's own version, neglect the meaning of the preposition hubo entirely, rendering it void. In hindsight, in the Christogenian New Testament, it would have been more accurate to write that if any man loves God, this is known through him, with a capital H on the final pronoun, indicating that it refers to God. Verse 4. Concerning then the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the society, and that there is none other God except one. Evidently, because he was distracted by a long parenthetical remark, Paul purposely repeated the opening clause from the first verse of the discourse here in the opening clause of verse 4. Verse 4 is basically a repeat of what we read in verse 1, the first part of it, because of Paul's parenthetical remark. This accords with the circumstance that this epistle was dictated to someone else who had actually done the writing. 
And that's a fact made evident in 1 Corinthians 16.21, where Paul tells us that he writes the salutation in his own hand. The um, final clause of verse 4, and that there is none other God except one. The ancient codices do not have the word for other. The majority text actually does have it, so we see it in the King James. The recorded words of Christ from the Gospel of Mark, from chapter 12, from verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus, this is the King James, and Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord, that word is curios, that's important to note, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. And the word for Lord in Mark 12.29 and 12.30 is curios. Curios, Strong's number 2962, on each occasion. And Paul goes on to say, and we're going to set that information on the side for a second. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, and even though there are so-called gods, either in heaven or on the earth, just as there are many gods and many lords, but to us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one prince, the word Lord, Kurios. Yahshua Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. The curios, our curios, is one curios, the words of Christ. And there is one curios, Yahshua Prince, I'm sorry, Yahshua Christ, through whom are all things, the words of Paul. First, let's discuss the phrase, there are so-called gods. That phrase may have been rendered because of the voice of the verb. There are those calling themselves gods. Paul used the same formula of the uncircumcised, the same word. In Ephesians 2.11, where the Christianian New Testament has the so-called uncircumcised. Paul addressing the Galatians saying, you are the so-called uncircumcised by those who are circumcised in the flesh by hand. Referring to the Jews. The same form of the verb lego, to speak or to say, was used in this manner by Greek writers as early as the time of Xenophon. 
as Ludell and Scott note, to mean they who are said to be something or the so-called something. Paul is discussing idolatry. He is not talking about those who are gods, but about those who are said to be gods, while in fact there is only one true God, Yahweh. And this allows us another digression, and I'm going to have to make it so. There's a few things we have to keep on the back burner here. And I'm going to address um, some of the clowns who think that they have truth from God. There are those who would assert that all of the sons of Adam are Elohim in Hebrew, or gods. Now, in a way, of course, this is true. And even Christ, when making a reference to the 82nd Psalm, even Christ said, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, that he called them gods unto whom the word of God came. And the scripture cannot be broken. And Christ used the Greek word theos, or God. As Christ also said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 6, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Now, that word perfect, which is the way that the King James Version has it, is a verb, and in, in its appropriate tense, it should have been rendered as perfected. Everyone who is perfected shall be as his master, referring to the disciples of Christ. More literally, the verb may mean restored. Everyone who is restored shall be as his master. And that's how it reads in the Christian New Testament. The same psalm, which addressed the children of Israel as God, Psalm 82, he called them gods unto whom the word of God had come. The same psalm goes on to say in verse 6, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, referring to the children of Israel. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Likewise, in his epistle to the Philippians in chapter 2, Paul said of Christ, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All being made in the likeness of Adam should follow his example and do the same, humbling himself 
and making himself of no reputation. If some clown comes to you and says, you are a god, he is trying to ingratiate you to win you over to his own vain pontificate. Man should humble himself, follow the example of Christ, and make himself of no reputation, as the King James Version has it. Becoming obedient, the Israelite submits himself to the word of Yahweh his God and counts Yahweh as the only God. The words of Christ from Luke chapter 9. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Humbling ourselves, we seek to conform ourselves to Christ, who debased himself. Exalting ourselves, we become as the enemies of God, which Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as those who imagined for themselves to be gods. Being Christians, we follow our master. We make ourselves of no account. And when we are restored, if we are so fortunate, we hope to be as Christ our Master. However, even with that, the Apostle John said in his first epistle, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. So conjecturing on it is vanity. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If the Apostle John, being so close to Christ, could not imagine what lay ahead for us, then neither should we. And the fool that thinks he has truth from God is exposed once again. Paul said here of Yahweh God that from him are all things, and of Christ that through him are all things. However, in order to understand the scripture, a man must learn to qualify what it means by all things within a biblical context. For instance, in Genesis chapter 9, we see that Yahweh instructed Noah, and Yahweh told Noah from verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So if we imagine that all things means everything, then we must imagine that Noah was permitted to eat anything. Yet Yahweh had already given 
instructions to Noah concerning the clean and the unclean. Now, why would he do that? That was in Genesis chapter 7, where it is written, two chapters before this comment in Genesis 9, of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. If Noah knew to distinguish the clean from the unclean, then where it was said that he could eat all things, we must interpret that to refer to all things which Yahweh had already ordained as being edible or clean. We cannot imagine that Yahweh permitted Noah to eat things such as swine or earthworms or crustaceans if those things were already deemed to be unclean, as we see, Noah was aware of the unclean things in Genesis chapter 7. Yahweh did not do away with such distinctions after the flood, or he would not have given them to as commandments to the children of Israel about 1,800 years later, at least. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, even though most translations miss the adversative particle, therefore, if one is among the number of Christ, a new creation, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come, but all things from Yahweh, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and is giving the service of reconciliation to us. That but in the Christogenian New Testament, starting in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is omitted by most translations. Other translations make it a conjunction. And. But the conjunction dare cannot be translated as and if the adversative force of the particle is lost in that translation. It's a particle with adversative force, meaning that it counters and qualifies what was said before. But is how to translate it there. All things from Yahweh, because there are things that are not from Yahweh. There are many things which are not from God, and that would include the idols, which Paul discusses here. Sin is not from God. And therefore the Apostle John says in his first epistle in chapter 3, he who is creating sin is from of the devil, since the devil sins from the beginning. For this the Son of God has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the devil. To discuss one more aspect of verse 6, which 
For that reason, we shall repeat again here. But to us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one prince or Lord. The word is kurios, Yahshua Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. If Yahshua Christ is the one Lord, the one kurios, as Paul used that Greek term, and if the same kurios is used of God the Father, the God of the Old Testament scriptures, throughout practically every book of the Bible, then Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh himself, or there are two lords and not one. Rather, what Paul offers here is an example of a Hebrew parallelism, a very common Hebrew writing style, in which an idea is repeated consecutively using different words or phrases that describe the same entity. The Greek preposition dia can mean through, by, or metaphorically on account of, among other things. Yahshua being the physical manifestation of God the Father, who was promised before the world began, according to Paul in Titus chapter 1. Then the physical world was made on his account or, as we may more literally render the term, through him. Through him were all things created. The revelation of Yahshua Christ fully corroborates the truth of this assessment, where in chapter 4, the 24 elders are portrayed as addressing the Lord, Kurios, God Almighty, and they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were, I'm sorry, they are and were created. Christians should have no doubt that Christ is God and that God is Christ. Paul is not splitting the Godhead into multiple individuals here. He is offering a Hebrew parallelism, which attests that all things which God created are from the one God. on account of, or through, his physical manifestation, which is Yahshua Christ. However, because idols are not from God, then Christians should not acknowledge them. And Paul tells us here that idols are nothing in the society. Idols are nothing 
in the world. And there is no God except one. In Exodus chapter 23, we read, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thine mouth. Therefore, idols are nothing in society, meaning that they are not to be reckoned or esteemed by Christians. By fearing something, think about this, by fearing something sacrificed to an idol, one is actually respecting the idol which does not exist, except perhaps in, in some um, work of man's hands in a representation. But the idol which the work of the hands of men represents is not. It is nothing. And it is certainly not a God. Verse 7, Yet, not in all is that knowledge, but some in the custom of the idol. And some manuscripts such as the Codex Clero-Montanus and the majority text upon which the King James is based have but some with consciousness of the idol. Until this time are nevertheless eating <coughs> of that offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. As we had discussed at length, presenting Romans chapter 14, where Paul also wrote on this same topic, the pagan temples of the ancient world served as centers of entertainment and as restaurants, as well as centers of prostitution and banking. One stop, and you could take care of everything. They had meat markets attached where meat sacrificed to their idols were offered for sale. If one lived in a city without a source of meat from some estate out in the country, then if one were to desire meat to eat, one would have to get it purchased from one of these pagan temples. This created a dilemma for Christians. If a Christian esteemed the idol, he would have a guilty conscience eating the meat because of the commandment against idolatry. Buying the meat or eating in such a temple, one is also in some degree supporting the temple and therefore the idolatry itself. One is also exposing himself to all of the disgusting practices that were going on in that temple. And Paul says, but food does not bring us to terms with Yahweh. Neither do we have an advantage if we would eat, nor do we come short if we would not eat. 
And some manuscripts invert the last two clauses of that verse, while others exchange the words translated as advantage and to come short would have advantage if we would not eat and would come short if we would eat. The food we eat does not make or break our relationship with God. Of course, when Paul mentions food, he is referring to what is customarily eaten under the law of God. That stuff, the clean stuff under the law of God, that stuff is food. He is not referring to things which are not customarily eaten and which are not even considered to be food. Unclean meats are those meats which the law forbids and one is not to eat them under any circumstances because they can't be cleansed. Unclean meats cannot be sanctified. However, meats which are allowed under the law, but which were sacrificed to idols, those meats were considered profane or defiled. Things which were profane or defiled could indeed be sanctified once again. Those can be eaten. And Paul says, but beware, lest in any way, by your license, this would become an obstacle to those who are weak. And the Greek word here, exousia, Strong's number 1849, is power or authority to do something or to have license in a thing which gives one the authority to do it. The word appears frequently in Paul's epistles. The Christogenian New Testament usually translates it as authority, but here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 several times and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 24, it is translated as license. In other contexts, it can be a sign of control in 1 Corinthians 11.10 or an office at Ephesians verse 2, in chapter 2. In the Gospel, the same Greek word, exousia, is used where the high priests questioned the teaching of Christ. And they asked, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? We see that in Matthew 21-23. Both times, the King James translates that word exousia there as authority. And the questioning of the high priests implied that Christ should have been given license to teach before he endeavored to do so. Paul makes a similar statement to the one he made in this chapter, and his consistency is indubitable. In Romans chapter 14, where he wrote, Now he who is weak in the faith, you should not receive for the arguing of decisions. While one trusts to eat all things, 
meaning all things ordained by the law. Yet another, being weak, eats vegetables to avoid eating meat, which has been sacrificed to idols. He who eats must not despise he that eats not. And he who eats must not he who eats not must not judge him that eats. Indeed, Yahweh has taken him to himself. Christian license. Who are you to be judging another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he shall stand. Indeed, the prince is able to establish him. While one distinguishes a day contrary to another day, yet another distinguishes every day. Each in his own mind must be fully assured. He who is observing the day observes it with authority, and he who eats, eats with authority. For he gives thanks to Yahweh, and he who does not eat with authority eats not. And he gives thanks to Yahweh. Paul goes on to admonish the Roman Christians that they should not judge one another for these things. Then, just as he says that an idol is nothing here, he wrote in Romans 14, verse 14, I know and have confidence by Prince Yahshua, that nothing is of itself profane, except to he who considers anything to be profane. To him it is profane. And with that, it is evident that the substance of the meat in the market is not changed by its having been slaughtered in a pagan temple. A Christian who is steadfast and understanding in his faith may be persuaded that the idolatry of the world has no effect on the meat. It makes no difference to the meat. And simply being hungry, the Christian needs to eat. Another Christian may be worried about the idolatry and avoid that need, being troubled at the thought of eating such food. However, even if Paul considered those who would not eat such meat to be weak in their faith, because Christians should esteem their brethren above themselves, Paul takes a turn by saying in Romans 14, in verse 15, but if, because of food, your brother is distressed, no longer do you walk in accordance with love. You must not, with your food, ruin that person for whose benefit Christ had died. Therefore, do not make him speak ill of your good. Indeed, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but justice and peace and delight in the Holy Spirit. Paul then concludes by saying, you must not destroy 
and this is back to Romans 14, you must not destroy the work of Yahweh on account of food. Certainly, all things are clean, meaning all things which are food, but are evil to the man who must eat in offense. If you must eat in offense, you should not eat, since your conscience is more important than your belly and your brother should be esteemed even beyond either of those. Therefore, if your brother is offended, you must abstain from that food. Paul goes on to say, it is not good to eat flesh. I'm sorry, it is good not to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything in which your brother takes offense at or is trapped by or is sickened. Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is presenting the same argument once again on different terms. And therefore, we also see that this issue must have been pressing throughout the early Christian assemblies. And Paul says in verse 10, For if perhaps one should see you who having knowledge, in other words, having the knowledge that the idol has no real effect on the meat, and the meat's the same after it's slaughtered to the idol, who having knowledge are in an idol's temple reclining at a meal, Will not the conscience of him being weak be emboldened in regard to eating the things offered to idols? And that word emboldened comes from a word which literally means to build up. While license is the authority, the permission, or the privilege to do something, licentiousness is generally considered to be a disregard for a law or a rule of conduct by doing things which one should not really be doing. Here we see that what one Christian considers license, another Christian may very well consider licentiousness. A Christian encouraged to take such license in disregard of the written law, may be tormented by a guilty conscience. We destroy our brother by encouraging them to do such things. Therefore, here, as he also did in his epistle to the Romans, Paul admonishes Christians not to take such license if it would and trap or offend the brother in such a manner. By the grace and mercy of Yahweh God, the children of Israel were spared the penalty of death under the law, and they were freed from the law when Yahweh died on their behalf. As Paul explained, in Romans chapter 7. Being freed from the law and under the grace and mercy of God in Christ, Christians shall not be judged by the law for their sins. 
For such reason, the Apostle John says in his first epistle, in chapter 2, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. With this, some Christians may find license to do some things because they shall not be condemned for doing them, having grace and mercy in Christ. Paul explains this in relation to the rituals of the law in Romans chapter 3. <laughs> Excuse me. There Paul also attests that all have done wrong and fall short of the honor of Yahweh. And explaining that Christ is a propitiation for sin, Paul says, we therefore conclude by reasoning a man to be accepted by faith apart from the rituals of the law. However, Paul also argues that for this very reason, Christians should seek to keep the law and to please God. Asking and answering rhetorically at Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. When we presented Romans chapter 14, several months ago here, where Paul discussed the very same topic as he does here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We use Paul's examples in order to show where Christians may disagree, but also to show how Christians may settle those disagreements by acceding to the law of God. Being willing to accede to the law, Christians should be able to settle practically all of their disagreements amicably. When man's ego gets in the way and he refuses to accede to the law, then we see the formation of sects. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 8. Then will he who is weak be ruined by your knowledge, the brother for whose sake Christ had been slain. As Paul had warned in Romans chapter 14, you must not with your food ruin that person for whose benefit Christ had died. If your license is seen as licentiousness, it is better for you to have self-control and to consent to the law of God for the sake of your brother. From the epistle of James, chapter 2, verse 8, if, however, you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love him near to you as yourself you do well. But if you respect the status of persons, you commit an error, being convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who should keep the whole law but would fail in one thing has become liable for all. For he having said you should not commit adultery also said you should not commit murder. 
And if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Thusly you speak, and thusly you do, as if going to be judged by a law of liberty. For judgment without mercy, the children of Israel are under that law of liberty, because they have a promise of the mercy of Christ. For judgment without mercy for him, not effecting mercy. Judgment is without mercy. Mercy exalts over judgment. Therefore, Christians should accede to the law of God out of mercy for their brethren as well. From Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at thy word as one that finds great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Yahweh, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul has kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. We keep the law, and we do not offend our brethren. Great peace have they which love thy law. Verse 12. Now in that manner, failing in regard for the brethren and striking their weak consciences towards Christ you fail, on which account, if meat offends my brother, I would not eat flesh for eternity in order that my brother will not be offended. So Christians have license to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But one's brother sees it as licentiousness then one should abstain from taking license. The Codex Claromontanus here has only brother rather than my brother twice in this text. The Greek word broma, Strong's number 1033, is properly that which is eaten. It means food. However, here... Because it's in the context of a word for flesh, which is kreos, later in the verse, we have taken the liberty of writing meat. The context allowed us to write meat here rather than food in verse 13. From Proverbs chapter 18, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of the castle. If we keep the gospel of Christ, and keeping the gospel and the commandments of Christ, we offend a brother, then we have not done wrong. For Christ himself said, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. But the same Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. From the first epistle of John, from chapter 5, Whosoever believeth 
that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And everyone that loves him that begot loves him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. We may find license to disregard the law, and if our brother is offended, we had better choose to keep the law rather than offend our brother. We know that we love our God and our brethren when we do that. If our license is seen as licentiousness, we would do better to exercise self-control. Today we have the same ages-old dilemma that the Assembly of Corinth had suffered. Only today, the idolatry is much more sophisticated. It is more and more difficult to dine out without being encumbered with the source of idolatry seen at sports bars or other entertainment-based restaurants. It is difficult to even procure food without the involvement of a global corporation somewhere in the supply chain. Not much different than the ancient pagan temples. Are, are, are such companies as Monsanto or Archer Daniels Midland or one of, those, one of those other companies being run by those who, as Paul had said, are abusing this world for their own benefit, the fornicators of this world. Eating in these places, Christian license allows us to do so without judgment. However, if one's brother is offended, do not compel him to eat in such places. Like the ancient pagan temples were filled with prostitutes, homosexuals, and other types of fornicators, today's eateries and entertainment meccas are filled with more of the same. It's no different today than it was in Paul's world, in Corinth. Wherever you go in public to take a meal, you, you witness idolatry, fornication, and everything else that's wicked that goes along with it. After a, after a long discussion <clears throat> excuse me, of marriage and virginity in what we now know as chapter 7 of this epistle, of course Paul did not write in chapters, and then a discussion of idolatry and its relationship to the procurement of food in Greco-Roman society here in chapter 8. Paul begins chapter 9 with the discussion of Christian license in respect to himself, using himself and others of the apostles as examples. However, Paul must have also been answering further questions which had been posed concerning him personally by the assembly, or at least on behalf of certain members of the assembly. Since the first verse of chapter 7, from that verse we see that Paul had been addressing issues which were brought to him in a letter. And here in chapter 9, in verse 3, Paul supplies an answer 
to those who examine him where he says, my answer to those who examine me is this. That must have been in response to questions from the letter which Paul received and for which he is writing this epistle to the Corinthians. Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an ambassador? Now, the majority text and the Codex Claromontanus actually have those um, two questions inverted. The words free and ambassador. Paul is referring to his own Christian liberty in connection with his office as he is about to discuss the license which, Christ, which Scripture grants him in the fulfillment of that office. And he says, Have I not seen Joshua our prince? And here Paul once again claims his authority directly from the risen Christ. And while the Scripture never mentions so much after the event, there must have been witnesses extant among those who were with Paul on the road to Damascus, who, attesting to it, had affirmed Paul's assertions concerning that event. This is evident because the other apostles clearly accepted Paul's account. And Paul goes on to say, Are you not my work in the prince? If to others I am not an ambassador, or an apostle, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance of my message is you in the prince, or in the Lord. The word suffragus is literally a seal, but it is also an assurance or a proof. The Greek word apostale is literally a sending off or a sending away. The Greek word apostolos means somebody who is sent off for a purpose in general. It could be several purposes. It could also mean somebody who is banished, and it was used that way in the Septuagint of Jeremiah. I'm sorry, in Jeremiah. The word was... The word apostale, literally ascending off or ascending away, was also used by the Greeks to describe the thing which was sent or the office or function of the person who was sent, who was doing the work of the apostolos or apostle. Here, in the Christogenian New Testament, it is message interpreted as referring to the thing being sent, which is, of course, the gospel. The word is also message in the Christian New Testament at Galatians 2.8 and in Brenton Septuagint in the 78th Psalm, verse 49. The seal or proof of Paul's apostleship as the word apostale may be rendered, was evident in the fact that he himself founded this Christian assembly of Corinth, which is described in Acts chapter 18. 
And that assembly continued as he wrote this epistle. So that proves Paul's, the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. This simple test as to whether such a commission is truly from God is found in the words of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 in verse 38, verses 38 and 39, where he said, For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. The proof of the apostleship of Paul of Tarsus is that these Christians were still in Corinth years after Paul founded this assembly, and they were still there in the face of persecutions, of great resistance from the enemies of God. And Paul says in verse 3, My answer to those who examine me is this. Do we not have license to eat and to drink? Do we not have license to always have with us a kinswoman, a wife, as also the other ambassadors and the brethren of the prince and Cephas? Cephas, Paul often used the... um, a transliteration of the Hebrew word for stone, which is kathos, that's the Hebrew word for stone, as a reference to Peter. Peter in Greek being Petros, which is the Greek word for stone. I'm certain that Paul probably used the term kathos rather than Peter out of affection for Peter. And in verse 6 he says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have license to work? That same word which we saw in chapter 8, exousia, is licensed three times in this passage from chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. The reference here in verse 5 to the brethren of the prince must be a reference to the apostles James and Jude, who are mentioned among Luke's reckoning of the apostles in Luke chapter 6 as James, the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, the brother of James, and where the children of Mary and the brethren of the Lord are recounted in the gospel, we see these same names appear. From Paul's statement here, it is evident that both of these men were married. We know from the gospel that the apostle Peter was married from the account of his mother-in-law who had fallen sick, which is found in Matthew chapter 8. The Greek word adelphe is literally and most simply a sister. Here it is rendered as kinswoman, so as not to be confused with a literal sister, a sister from the same father and mother, or with an idea which is so wrongfully prevalent today, the idea that 
anyone who happens to walk through the door of a church building may somehow become an Adelphi or an Adelphus or a brother. The word Adelphus properly signifies a son of the same mother. And then, more generally, it was used in classical Greek to refer to a near kinsman. And that's explained by Liddell and Scott. And that's how, the, that's how these words were understood throughout Greek history. Any special ecclesiastical definition of these terms must be rejected since these words were not used outside of familial or tribal relationships. These words were never used in Greek to describe mere fellow believers of a thing. Liddell and Scott also cite examples of the use of the term Adelphi, the female form of Adelphus, as a term of endearment in reference to a wife. But typically, Greeks did not marry outside of their own tribe. Look at the way Paul used the term Adelphus here, or brother, in the plural brethren. Peter was certainly a fellow believer, but Paul distinguished him here from the brethren of the Lord. Paul did not count Peter here among the brethren of the Lord. Peter was from a different tribe of Israel than Christ. Therefore, since Paul certainly did not use the term Adelphus here to refer to a fellow believer, he meant the literal brethren of the Lord. Then neither was the term Adelphi used here in that sense, because Paul never used the term in that sense. Rather, Paul is saying that properly a wife is a near kinswoman, somebody from the same tribe, as the term was also used in Greek. From Numbers, chapter 36, verse 9. Neither shall the inheritance remove from one tribe to another tribe, but every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep to himself his own inheritance. That's done by marrying people from your own tribe. Here Paul mentioned three things which he, as an apostle, had a license to do. To eat and to drink to marry, and to work or not to work. Paul did work when he could, which is evident from Acts chapter 18, and from further on in this very chapter here, that Paul had license to eat and to drink. Maybe, this is conjectural, maybe a reference to some of his own eating habits while he traveled to Greece. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. Since he was often found in the markets and other places in the city preaching the gospel, it is hard to imagine that he did not 
at times procure food from common places, especially since he wasn't married. Paul shall explain to us later in this chapter why he chose not to marry. However, in reference to his working or whether he should be supported by the Christian assemblies themselves, he continues in verse 7, and he states, Who at any time serves as a soldier with his own provisions? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not eat of the milk of the flock? When a soldier fights a war, he is provided for by those for whom he is fighting. When a laborer plants a field, he does so with an unnatural expectation that he will eat of some of its fruit. Likewise, the Christian apostle could expect to be provided his sustenance from the Christian assembly. Paul chose to work anyway as he will explain here later, that the message of the gospel not be hindered. This we may be able to understand in light of the difficulty of gaining support of the people when you are preaching things which are not comfortable for them to hear. All identity Christians should understand that truth is certainly not profitable and how easy it is to corrupt someone when you're providing for them. Paul would rather work without being provided for that the message of the gospel not be hindered. Yet, in support of his statement in verse 7, Paul continues, Do I speak these things according to man, or does the law not also say these things? Indeed, in the law of Moses, it is written, you will not muzzle a treading ox. As the gospel of Christ said in relation to the bringing of the word to the people, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. So it is not inappropriate for Paul to compare the apostles to the oxen treading the fields. The law says in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Where he continues, Paul correctly asserts that the wisdom of God is for the benefit of man and not for the benefit of the ox. We shall conclude with that thought and continue it here in our next segment of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Good night.